Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Thanks be to God for the reading of this word. singing songs, I was, you might have seen me, I, I couldn't help but not like clap a little bit as we were going uh, under there. So, I, you know, I still hold many of the beliefs and the practices that I learned as a kid near and dear to my heart. I, uh, he mentioned I'm a doctor, I got a PhD in theology studying the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and around the world, um, and I still identify as Pentecostal, but, but as many of us do, as Pastor was talking about, we live life, we evolve, we come into contact with other traditions within the body of Christ, and we see that our little corner of Christianity or our little corner of the world is not the only way to do things. It's not the only way to believe and to live out our faith, and that certainly our little corner cannot explain the fullness of who God is in Christ Jesus. And this past year was quite a year for a lot of us. It put strain on the already kind of underlying fissures in maybe our own mental health or our physical health or the fissures within our family uh, or and in our nation this past year. It feels like we've never been more divided. Even back in pastor's office before the service, we were talking about some of those divisions that are hard to overcome in our nation right now. We're divided over 
presidents, we're divided over masks and vaccines, we're divided over when to speak out and when not to speak out and what to speak out on and maybe even over Afghanistan now, like we prayed about uh, this morning. And as I've lived through this last year and did a lot of self-reflection, I, I realized that through all of my education and through my 20 years of ministry experience in churches and on college campuses, that there's been a little bit of a, a shift, maybe a big shift in my theology, something that I can certainly say, I never learned that in Sunday school. And it intersects with the reading for today from Ephesians and this topic of spiritual warfare. So, you know, I shared my background because I don't know about you and your background, but growing up Pentecostal, I heard the end of Ephesians 6 quoted often. In particular, I heard verse 12 of Ephesians 6 quoted a lot. It was, it was this from our reading this morning. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, the church that I grew up in majored on spiritual warfare. It was one of the things that we did really well. And uh, this passage was kind of the degree plan for us of how to, to learn about spiritual warfare. And, and we took many different classes on the topics throughout my time as a kid. We would pray over our city. We would seek out what we call demonic strongholds to break. And these strongholds were usually associated with morally corrupt areas of our city. And we would pray and we would ask which powers uh, were coming against the church and hindering our ministry as a church. And we'd overcome these strongholds, uh, spiritual strongholds, by repenting or by anointing parts of the church with oil. For instance, we prayed for the closing of a local bar and seeing that as a stronghold, a stronghold of, of drinking or of alcoholism that would come against the work of God in our city. Or one time we held a bonfire to destroy the secular music and the secular movies that might be kind of infiltrating our life and gaining a stronghold for the enemy in our lives. Uh, we would intercede for our friends, being uh, reminded in the process of interceding for our non-Christian friends that, that their waywardness was really a spiritual issue that required prayer, fasting, and spiritual warfare. The examples were countless, and if you grew up Pentecostal, you may have some of your own, or maybe from your tradition, you have examples of what spiritual warfare meant to you, and what you were warring against, and how you warred against these things in our world and in our contexts. But in general, in my experience at least, Spiritual warfare usually revolved around prayer and intercession over kind of personal moral sin and a lack of ministry growth. You know, if our church wasn't growing, it was probably because of spiritual warfare or maybe a moral corruption in our city, as well as the positive of kind of tilling the ground for revival that we would see God's work in our city and in our ministry. Now, I don't have any reason in particular to kind of contest these applications of spiritual warfare. I do still believe in the demonic. I do believe that there's an accuser who comes against 
the children of God and the church. I do believe that the demonic can affect individuals. And I even believe that the spiritual darkness can cover groups of people and uh, in different ways. And, and maybe the work that we did as a church as I was growing up was really important in combating the darkness of our world. I, I don't know for sure, but as I've read and I've studied and I've preached the letter to the Ephesians, I don't see many of these applications uh, in the context of the passage that, of, that we read this morning. Uh, these types of things of personal morality or, or city strongholds don't seem to be on Paul's mind in the letter to Ephesians. And, and why does context and what Paul's talking about in the whole letter matter, you might ask? You see, literary context, it functions as a kind of a bullseye in a couple of ways. One, it helps us to determine the author's intended meaning of the passage. And so the closer in the bullseye we can get to what the, the author meant when he was writing it, the closer we can get with our applications of how we apply it in our own lives, right? But then also it kind of serves as a bullseye because the closer to the text we're trying to interpret, the more weight it will have, right? So the more, the closer the context to Ephesians 6, the more weight it'll have, but we want to take all of the context of Scripture into account. So, for instance, for Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, the first context that we would look to is what Paul is talking about in the rest of Ephesians chapter 6, right? Then we would zoom out to Ephesians 4 through 6, which scholars usually call the application part of Ephesians. Then we'd zoom out to the rest of the letter to include one chapters 1 through 3, which is the more theological part leading up to the application. Then we'd zoom out and maybe look at what Paul's other letters have to say about spiritual warfare, and then the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the Old Testament. And in this way, we would take into account the whole counsel of Scripture, um, because these other passages would nuance our understanding of what Paul mean, might mean by spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. And so if we do that a little bit, if we look at the immediate context of our reading in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, we see that Paul is talking about social relationships, leading up to talking about putting on the armor of God and about battling uh, the dark forces of our world. He's talking about social relationships and how they should look in light of the reconciling good news of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul talks about, for instance, how children should relate to their parents, as well as how slaves and masters should relate to one another in chapter 6, um, especially given the tension between the wide power gap between these groups in culture, but they're leveling in Christ. You see, children had no rights until they were adults, and parents had all the rights. Same thing with slaves and masters, but Paul kept preaching in the earlier part of the book that in Christ, we are all one, that these power dynamics that create difference, that create disunity, that create, um, create uh, yeah, social structures, they, they don't exist in the same way in Christ. And so Paul's encouragement to put on the armor of God and his admonition that it's for spiritual battle comes on the heels of talking about reorienting our social relationships from the way that our world sets them up, about rethinking the power dynamics that exist between us 
within the body of Christ. And if we zoom out from chapter 6, this reorientation of social relationships was also occurring in chapter 5, as Paul talked about spousal, spousal relationships. Uh, he also talked about how to live wise in the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 4, which interestingly, as Paul talks about how to live wise in this world, he talks about it in the context of building one another up rather than uh, dividing one another, right? Rather than taking advantage of one another. He says that to be wise in this world, we should build one another up in a way that encourages and builds unity rather than being divisive. And so again, it's about relationships and unity. Chapter 5 also comes with a, a discussion of radical inclusion, where Paul basically says that maintaining the unity of diverse groups, whether these groups are in power or lacking power, is important because everybody is welcomed into the body of Christ. Again, he mentions parents and children, slaves and masters, husbands and wives. Paul wants all of these groups to be living in unity with one another, but not just a passive kind of unity. He wants an active unity that seeks the good and the well-being of one another, even when our, the power structures or the politics or the dynamics of our world may tell us differently. This context may also be why, after this talk about spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of Ephesians, Paul tells his readers to pray for all of the Lord's people, which is one of the few places that he does that in any of his letters. He says, pray for all of the Lord's people, and he says to pray for me so that I can proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. What is this mystery of the gospel that we are battling and fighting for? This is where, and asking this question, we can broaden the context a little bit to the first three chapters of Ephesians, or what scholars call the, the theological part of Paul's letter that leads to the application. This mystery, Paul tells us, of the gospel is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. It's the message that in Christ, all people have been included equally within the family of God. If this is the heart of the mystery of the gospel, this means that the greatest attack of the enemy would be against the inclusion of all peoples. The greatest attack would be to tell us that only some people are included in the gospel, or that among some people that these people are more worthy of inclusion than others. An attack would be against a unity that would say that we all matter in the body of Christ, that we all matter in our world because we're children of God, made in the image of God, and loved by God. And in fact, if we zoom out again to some of other Paul's letters, some of Paul's other letters, we see that this is one of the biggest issues that he is continually dealing with in the church is disunity, talking against uh, Judaizers or a group of people that were trying to say, no, to be a Christian, you have to do it this way. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the festivals and the rules. And he says, no, 
Christ is more inclusive than that. It includes the Gentiles and these people that worship a little bit differently than you worship over here as well. And we all do it under Christ. And he says, no, it's not about who you learn from. If you learn from Silas or if you learn from Barnabas or if you learn from me, it's all about Jesus, right? So in all of his other letters, it's not the only thing he talks about. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that. But a theme in all of his letters is the unity about bringing together all of these different groups in the body of Christ into this great mystery that is the gospel. And so as we look at the context of Ephesians 6 that we read today, I think there's probably some space. I'm a very, I like to live a generous, be a generous person. And I, so I think I can see space for some of the ways in which my church growing up applied this verse. I mean, certainly it is spiritual warfare when people are not hearing the gospel. It can be spiritual warfare when people are living lives of sin, disconnected from the good news of Jesus. It can be spiritual warfare when alcoholism is is afflicting a whole generation or a group of people. But we often miss that a major thrust of Paul, which is, is that one of the greatest tools of evangelism that exists, is simply the picture of a united and inclusive church over against the segregated, powered structures of our world. In fact, even Jesus preaches this when he says that by this they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, right? By living in a different set of power structures and inclusivity than the world tends to do, which divides and separates. And so I fear that as my family, my part of the body of Christ, looks for demons afflicting individuals or causing personal immorality in our lives, that we often have missed that this spiritual warfare that I do believe is very real, that it has very embodied and physical manifestations in our world, which Paul has been discussing all throughout the book of Ephesians. You know, one other thing that I didn't learn in Sunday school is that we can only discern what is going on in the spiritual realm through the physical, through the bodily, and through the social manifestations that the spiritual world takes in our everyday life. What does this mean, that the the spiritual, we can only discern it through manifestations in the bodily and the social This means, what this means is that during Paul's time, the disunity that was occurring within the church, the disunity between races and cultures, between genders and social classes, between various ways of living out the faith, that these led Paul to have to remind the Ephesian believers and believers everywhere that behind these physical manifestations of disunity and non-inclusion, that there is something more sinister at work to tear apart the unity of the church, that in those divisions, we can see and identify the work of the enemy, the spiritual darkness that's trying to afflict us. And so I want to ask, when we pray in the spirit and when we wage spiritual warfare, maybe you don't use those terms, but that's the terminology I grew up with. What are we praying for? What are we fighting for in our world? 
Are we waging war for racial reconciliation within the church and racial reconciliation in our country and in our world? Do we wage spiritual warfare so that the poor among us have the same opportunities and the same voice as those that can afford the best education and the best tutors in high school, but the poor often lack for opportunities and the opportunities to attend our best institutions of higher education? Do we wage spiritual warfare fighting for the voices of women and people of color to be on the platforms and at the major decision-making tables of our churches and of our movements? Are we hearing the spirit of Pentecost leading? The same spirit who was about creating a new community in Acts chapter 2, that when the spirit fell at Pentecost, a new community was created that included people of every tongue and that shared their resources with one another, that would come together and pray and worship daily, but also give to one another and share in a very, very inclusive way. Because when this is happening, when we're waging war for these types of unity and reconciliation, I believe that the gospel and the mystery of the gospel is truly being lived out. And we have truly received the inheritance that is ours, the inheritance that's all of humanity's in Christ Jesus, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1. It's then when we fight this kind of spiritual battle for unity that we're truly seated with Christ in the heavenlies. As we experience the, the radical diversity of heaven that we see in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 where it says that every tongue and tribe was there worshiping before the throne of God. Is that a vision that we can pray for? and that we can fight for. And sometimes it does include fighting for the individual and praying for the one lost soul. Jesus tells a parable about that, right? About leaving the 99 to go after the one. And so I, like I said, I totally believe that spiritual warfare and battling can include praying for that one. But maybe it's a little bit bigger. And maybe the, I just, I'm just speaking to you here now. I have this deep fear that led me to write this little blog that Pastor Rob read, that there's a deep division going on in our country that, and within the church that, that scares me, that makes me sad, that makes me wonder, what are we missing about the gospel? And that we need to reflect, and that we need to pray, and that we need to, to reread some of these passages. And for me, one that I grew up with is this passage on spiritual warfare, and I'm beginning to see that there is real spiritual warfare going on in our country, but maybe it's a little bit different than we think sometimes, and it's the work of the enemy to bring division among races, among the church, among social classes within our community. So my encouragement is that we would be warriors for the mystery of the gospel and the inclusion of all people into the love of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As Brandon was preaching there, a prayer came to mind. I, I think it's in our hymnal, actually, but I don't know exactly where. There's a prayer written by Alan Patton, who was the author of the book, Cry the Beloved Country. He was an Episcopal, or I think, Anglican priest 
uh, you know, who was confronting apartheid in South Africa, uh, which is certainly based and rooted in this notion of, of division as God ordained, right? This, the, uh, 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 as, of course, slavery was in our country. And so I want to try and close with that prayer before we sing our final song. And I, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and remember it. I believe let's be in an attitude of prayer. Oh, God, open my eyes that I may see the needs of others. Open my ears that I may hear their cries. Open my heart so that they need not be without succor. Let me not be afraid to defend the weak because of the anger of the strong, nor afraid to defend the poor because of the anger of the rich. Show me where love and hope and faith are needed and use me to bring them into those places. And now, God, open my eyes and my ears so that this coming day I may be able to do some work of peace for thee. Amen. Let us stay.